called Help My Unbelief. And this is going to be a series about unbelief, about doubt, um, all the things that topics that relate to that. And I will admit that this will be about a six-week series. I admit that um, I feel a lot of tension in my heart as it relates to you guys and where you're at in your faith, but also my own kids who are now 14 and 11. I think that's right. 14 and 11. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm a great father, I know. And, uh, and so I feel this tension sometimes when it comes to my own kids' faith, but also where many of you are at in your faith. And here's why. Because on the one hand, I want people coming to faith early in life. That is a good thing, I think. But on the other hand, I get concerned that those who do will just settle for a shallow faith and just reject it all later on. Now, I'm not saying that people can lose their salvation. I don't think people can lose their salvation. But um, if someone can just walk away, then I would say they never truly had a true saving faith. But I think what can happen sometimes is that we in the church, we as leaders in the church, never taught them that being a Christian is about living in some tension, living in the tension. So when people begin to have doubts and questions about the faith, they think it's not allowed to discuss those things in the church, and, uh, and so they end up rejecting the whole thing outright sometimes. So I think we as leaders need to do, to do a better job at helping you understand that being a Christian, a Christ follower, is about living in some tension, and that's okay that is expected in the Christian life. Now, um, in this series, we're not really going to address every doubt and every question that someone might have, but we're going to look at a more fundamental question, which is this. What is belief? What is the nature of belief? What does belief look like? What should it look like in our lives? Um, is it just believing in some historical facts about Jesus, or is it much more than that? So our ultimate goal for this series is this. It's to help you see that belief isn't blind faith. So belief is not just closing your eyes and saying, I just believe, I just have blind faith. It's not that. And that questions, if asked well, are simply building blocks for stronger faith rather than stepping stones away from it. So we don't, you, don't want you to be afraid of asking questions or having some doubts. Because some of you think that belief just simply means blind faith, and you want nothing to do with that, and so you reject the whole thing. But belief isn't just blind faith. It's not blind faith. Others of you might be nervous, thinking that if you entertain some doubts or some questions, well, that might lead to rejecting the whole faith, and I don't want to do that, so I'm just going to act like those don't even exist. And uh, so I want you to think of this as an opportunity to grow and not think of it as just this, um, this either-or thing. So there's a story in Mark chapter 9. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have your Bibles with you. There's a story in Mark chapter 9 that I want to frame our whole series. There is this father who loves his son, and his son is possessed by a demon. And when this demon takes hold of this boy, the boy falls on the ground. He grinds his teeth. He foams at the mouth, and he, he, um, this very crazy scene breaks out when this demon takes hold of him. And the man asked the disciples if they can cast out this demon, but they're not able to. So then this crowd now assembles around this, this man and his boy, and Jesus is now being asked from this father if he can heal his son. And so Mark chapter 9, verse 19, where it says, And he answered them, so Jesus is saying this to them now, 
He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus, you can hear the exhaustion in his voice. We picture Jesus, and he is, he's compassionate because he's Jesus. But we, we picture Jesus always being just exhibiting the, the, the best patience with people. But there are times where he gets frustrated and he speaks his mind, he speaks his heart to this, this father and to this crowd. And he says, fine, just bring him to me. And then verse 20 to 22 where it says, And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. When this demonic spirit sees Jesus, it throws this boy into convulsions. And the father says this has been happening all throughout his childhood. And he says, sometimes this, this demon will throw my son into the fire to burn him or throw him into the water to try to drown him. And it's trying to destroy my son's life. And then the father says, you know, but if you can do anything, Jesus, if you can. You can hear the doubt in the father's voice. He may have heard about Jesus or know something about Jesus, but he's not quite sure, can this Jesus, does he have the power to truly heal my son? So he says, if you can do anything, just please help. Please help my son. You can imagine this father has probably pulled out all the stops at this point. He's asked the disciples, he's asked other people if they can intervene, and no one can, and so... He's now going to the, maybe the last person he thinks can heal his son. He goes to Jesus and says, if you can heal him, please do so. Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So to give away the ending of the story, Jesus rebukes this demonic spirit. He casts him out. And he commands him never to enter the boy ever again. But let's go back to what this father said to Jesus. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. And it's exclamation. It's, he's shouting it. He is crying out to Jesus and saying this statement. And uh, Jesus seems to take offense at the father's lack of faith when the father says something profound. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. So this, this prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, that prayer is going to shape this whole series. Because many people think of belief like this. Either you have it or you don't. And it's a little bit more complex than that. Now, I will say, either you're saved or you're not. I'm not saying there's a, a mushy middle to that. I'm talking about how we think of the definition of the word belief Many people think of belief, either you have it or you don't. And that's, there's no in between. And I would say it's a little more complex than that because no amount of maturity or spiritual growth should move us beyond that prayer that that man prayed in Mark chapter 9. So he prays his prayer, help my unbelief. So the stronger our faith, the more we should pray that prayer. The more, the more mature you are in your faith, the more you'll recognize your need 
to continue praying that prayer throughout your life in your walk with Christ. Now, this side of heaven, we should all live in that tension, I believe. Because, listen, there are those who ignore the second half of that statement. You know, I believe, and that's it. And, you know, they don't want to admit that they have any doubts. And so they never call on God asking for help to help their unbelief. Then there are those who focus on, on the second statement, help my unbelief. And they know they have doubts and questions. But they don't understand that it's possible to have a saving faith while still having some doubts and some questions. They think if I have any doubts, well, then maybe I don't truly believe. You know, sometimes people think they can't enter a relationship with Jesus if they have some questions and some doubts. So I think about a, just a human relationship, whether it's a friendship, whether it is a dating relationship or a marriage relationship. Um, what if we never entered into any kind of relationship unless we understood everything about the other person? We would never enter, in, we would never enter into any kind of relationship if that was the case. Listen, there's, of course, whenever you're entering into a potential marriage relationship, there needs to be some things you know about the person, like their character and those kinds of things. But listen, you don't know every single thing about that person. You don't understand everything about that person, and that's an earthly relationship. In the same way, you can't know everything about Jesus before you enter into a relationship with him. You can't enter into a relationship with having all your questions answered, all your doubts resolved. No relationship works that way not even here on earth. I will tell you, there, there are things about my wife and I, our marriage, like that will be mysterious until the day we die, right? Like there are things that I will not know about her, things she will not know about me, just about our personalities and the intricacies of that, that we will not fully understand this side of heaven. The same, I think, goes for our relationship with Jesus. We're not going to have all of our questions and doubts answered before entering into a relationship with him. So, Here's good news. We can enter into a relationship with him while still having some questions and not fully understanding everything about him. You might say it like this. A relationship that has stood up against doubt is deeper than one where doubt was never allowed. So uh, St. Augustine, he once said, if you can fully comprehend God, then it's not God. Sometimes just because we can't fully grasp something we begin to doubt whether or not it's true. So the prayer this man prays in Mark chapter 9, I believe, help my unbelief, this might, it might seem like an immature prayer for someone to pray, but really, it, it truly shows maturity. It, I think it shows how dependent someone is upon Jesus and the Spirit of God living in them, the Holy Spirit. So the mature person knows the Christian life is a life of tension. And it's okay for us to live in that tension. So now there are some people, let's be honest, there's some people in this room that you're, you consider yourself not yet a Christ follower. And if that's where you sit today, I'm just glad that you're in here. Now, maybe you were forced to come. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But maybe you came of your own accord. Maybe you, someone asked you to come. Maybe your parents made you come. I don't know what your situation is. But if that's where you are, I'm just glad that you're in here today. And when you hear stories about Jesus 
like casting out this demon out of a boy in the Bible, you think it's crazy. You tend to see believing in God, you equate believing in God with like believing in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. It's just, it's just fantasy, and I understand that. And so the person who is the skeptic or the doubter or the questioner, this person can often seem like the smartest person in the room. Like they're the person who just, they question everything, they, um, they shoot holes in everything. And so I'm not saying that's you, I'm saying maybe you are just kind of walking through some questions and some doubts. But there are some people, like the more obvious or the more overt atheist types that they might just want to, you know, punch holes in everything, in every idea about as it relates to God. There's a person like this, uh, you may not have heard of him, but he's a famous atheist philosopher named Richard Dawkins. I think he teaches at Oxford, I believe. Um, And he says this one statement. He says, I have found it an amusing strategy when asked whether I am an atheist to point out that the questioner, the person asking the question, is also an atheist when considering Zeus, Apollo, Amon-Ra, Mithras, Baal, Thor, Wotan, and the golden calf, and the flying spaghetti monster. I just go one God further. So he is saying to all Christians, he's saying, hey, I'm not much different than you because you don't believe in all those other gods. So in that sense, you're the atheist as well. You don't believe in those gods. I just go one God further. I just include your God in that. Now, What's interesting is that the first Christians were called atheists by the Romans because the Christians were the ones that were saying it was common accepted thing in that culture to believe in many gods. And the Christians come along and say, no, 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 we just believe in one God. And the Romans called the Christians atheists and said, you don't, it's obvious that there's many gods. Everyone knows that. The Romans know it. The Greeks know it. Why don't you know that? So the first Christians were called atheists because they only believed in one God. And the Romans and the Greeks were like, well, you might as well believe in no God because everyone knows there's many gods. It was accepted in that culture to believe in many gods. Of course, now today, we would never say that someone who believes in just one God is an atheist. We wouldn't say that today. But that's what they said of Christians back then because they didn't believe in the Roman gods or the Greek gods. So it's easy for us to hear someone like a Richard Dawkins or maybe someone that's a friend of yours that just likes to kind of shoot holes in everything. And it's easy to think of that person and when they start questioning us and asking us questions about our faith, our faith can start to feel like childish or foolish. And you think, yeah, it, it just kind of sounds dumb. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how to answer their questions. And it's easy for us to see someone like him as standing on a pedestal of reason and logic and science and then see ourselves as standing on just the wobbly foundations of religion and faith and belief, and we can start to feel kind of stupid about it. One of my favorite Richard Dawkins moments, though, was when he was asked one time in an interview with someone as he's talking about how he doesn't believe in God, And the interviewer asked him, they said, then how do you believe we got here? Like, where did we come from? And he goes on for a bit, and he says, I don't know, possibly aliens? 
like maybe aliens just implanted humanity on the earth. And I started to think, but doesn't that require a lot of faith to believe that? Like, just think of where, if you really unpack that, like what it would require of someone to believe something like that. And I started to realize he's standing on the same pedestal that we're standing on, the pedestal of faith. It's the exact same thing. Because here's the reality. No one can escape faith and belief. For the skeptic who wants to shoot holes in everything, in Christianity especially, they still have to explain, like, how we got here. Or explain morality or explain truth. Or explain how do we even have this thing called good and evil. They still have to explain those things. They they don't get let off the hook because they've just simply said they don't believe in, in your idea of God. They've got, a, they've got a lot of explaining to do when it comes to how we got here and just the state of things in our world. So no one can escape faith and belief. Uh, a guy named Alistair McGrath also, he says this, to accept Jesus demands a leap of faith, but so does the decision to reject him. Because if you reject him as Savior, as Messiah, as King, you've got to have a whole other explanation for everything. And to me, that's a much bigger faith leap than it is to simply just admit that that Jesus is who he said he was. So everyone stands on faith, including someone who doesn't believe that God even exists. So how do we live, how do we come to live in this tension that I'm talking about? And we start by asking in the same way that this man did in Mark chapter 9. We start with the prayer of this man in Mark chapter 9. When Jesus When Jesus walked on the earth, there were those who asked questions, seeking to understand, and then there were those who asked questions in a challenging way, like the Pharisees, trying to trip him up. You know, some asked from a standpoint of faith. That's this man here in Mark chapter 9. Others asked from a standpoint of unbelief. I think of how whenever a a child comes to a parent asking a question, usually the child is asking the parent the question, because they know the parent can provide the answer. Or maybe it's something that they're wanting, and they they know the parent can provide whatever it is that they lack. And so they say, Mom, Dad, could I have this? Or what's the answer to this question? Because they usually know the parent can provide the resource or the parent can provide the answer that they're looking for. This man goes to Jesus because he believes that Jesus can help him with his unbelief. So if we're going to ask with this posture, like the posture of faith and trust, we also have to know when to lay our questions down and what questions we should lay down. Because sometimes there are not, there are not answers to our questions, at least not answers that we're going to know right now in this life. Barnabas Piper, he writes in his book, he says, if we don't put away some questions they will end up eating our beliefs from the inside out. So there are some that want, like you want every question answered. And if you don't have every question answered, you're just like, I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to buy it. I'm not going to have faith. I'm not going to have trust because I don't know the answer to this question or that question or that question. But here's the reality. If you, if you just sit in that the rest of your life and you don't end up putting away some questions, 
they're just going to eat you alive. And it still requires faith to believe in whatever it is you already, you do believe in. So understand that as you come with the, the questions and the doubts, you're still standing on a pedestal of faith just like we are. So we often, we will hyper-focus on our questions and maybe be disappointed that God hasn't answered those questions, but I'm not sure that's the right place for you to stay in that place. So let me just quickly uh, define for you what doubt is and how we're defining it for the series. So here's what doubt is not. It's not skepticism. So it's not what I just told you that Richard Dawkins believes. It's not the decision to question everything. It is not unbelief, the decision to not have faith in God. So that's, that's not the same thing as just having some doubts. So sometimes the atheist might say, well, they might say they reject God because they, can't have all their, they don't have all their questions answered. But sometimes it's just a smokescreen for, I just don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a person or a God that I'm accountable to. I, don't, I wish there wasn't a God. I don't want there to be a God. So sometimes the, the atheism or the agnosticism can just be a smokescreen for what their heart really wants, which is rebellion and disobedience, and, and that can be what drives some of that sometimes. So here's what doubt is as it relates to this series. Asking questions or voicing uncertainties from the standpoint of faith. And we're going to show you how to live in this tension as a Christian, what it means to live in the tension of, of I believe, but help my unbelief. And having that posture with God as we walk through this series together. I know for some it might be surprising. You might think, I didn't know you could do that in church. I didn't know that you could voice those things and it'd be a safe thing to do. And so we want this to be a, a place that can happen. So let's go back to our story. This father makes a request of Jesus, and he asks this request, help my unbelief from a standpoint of faith and belief. He asks from a faith, from a place of belief. So asking in this way shows that the request can be granted. He, he trusts Jesus that this request help my unbelief, can be granted by Jesus. So asking for help in this way is a cry of belief. This is what you and I should pray whenever you feel nothing for Jesus. If you're a Christian, a Christ follower, and there are times in your life where you feel nothing for him, you feel no passion, you feel no zeal, you feel, no, you feel nothing for Jesus, this is the prayer that you should pray. Help my unbelief. Help me. Help my unbelief. It's what we should pray when we know that God exists. We know that he's there. We know he loves us, but we just don't feel it. We just don't sense it. Like you and I, listen, we have to get over this idea that we've got to have it, somehow have it together whenever we go and pray and talk to God. Like that's not even scriptural. Have you read the Psalms? Do you not see the tension, like, in the Psalms and, and these, these cries of, like, God, where are you? Many Psalms are about that. I think God gives us those Psalms to say, this is how you should pray to me. Let me just spell it out for you. And it's okay for you to come to him with this posture of, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
Our problem is that we think we can only pray when we have it all together, and we just, we never have it all together. We never will decide of heaven. So, last idea. So, praying, help my unbelief, is the best way to express our belief. So, you guys are going to go to your breakouts. Um, if you're